for status on Katil Hayek. Welcome. Today, my guest is Dr. Sahar Mohammed Khamis. She's an expert on Arab and Muslim media. Dr. Khamis is an associate professor of communication and an affiliate professor of women's studies at the University of Maryland, College Park. I will chat with Dr. Khamis about her research interest and the current projects she's working on. Welcome, uh, Sahar. So happy to have you. Thank you so much, Katie. I really appreciate the opportunity and thanks for the interview. Thanks to you and for joining us. Uh, first, I actually want to start by asking about your background. Can you share with us when you got interested in the field of communication and what inspired you to be an Arab media scholar? Yeah, that's a great question. I've always had a passion for writing uh, since I was a young girl. I always liked writing and poetry and short novels and stories. Uh, reading and writing has always been my passion. And after getting my high school diploma from Blair High School in Ohio, I went back to Egypt and I had very high scores uh, in my high school diploma. And I was torn between the dream of being a pediatrician and the dream of being uh, you know, a media scholar and even a television anchor woman, believe it or not. So my father said, why don't you do both? You can actually do both. I said, how come? He said, you can study at you know, Cairo University in the Faculty of Medicine and at the same, study, at the same time study communication also at the American University in Cairo. And that's what I did for a few weeks, actually. I was studying at both colleges. And then after a while, I discovered, well, you know what? Uh, medicine is not my passion. My passion is really uh, writing and communication. When I went into the American University in Cairo, of course, the first year is more general. So you take courses across the board and across different disciplines. And my father wanted me to study business administration, finance, and accounting, because that would give me, according to him, a secure job with high pay. I took a few of these courses. I did not find my passion in them. I found my passion pretty much in the field of communication. So I decided to uh, specialize in communication. I got my BA and my MA in mass communication from the American University in Cairo. And then I got my PhD in mass media and cultural studies from the University of Manchester uh, in England. And after that, of course, I've been working as a professor of communication in different universities in the Arab world and in Europe and in the US and in the Gulf. For the last 14 years, of course, I've been with the Department of Communication uh, at the University of Maryland College Park. Being, of course, an Arab slash Muslim woman, naturally, I've had a passion for uh, you know, writing about communication and media in this part of the world in particular. And I felt that I really have a duty and responsibility to focus on the media dynamics and their intersections with identities uh, and you know, evolving identities in this particular part of the world, which is the Arab world slash Muslim world. And that's why I really started to pursue a career in this particular area of study and research. On behalf of other communication scholars, I'm so happy that we got you in the field and that you stayed in the field of communication. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. So uh, in regard to that, uh, throughout uh, your uh, years as communication scholar, uh, what are the larger questions that influenced your scholarship and how your research interests uh, evolved over uh, the years? Uh, what challenges did you face also? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually started with uh, what you can call ethnographic research. So my PhD at the University of Manchester I had to deal with, uh, you know, uh, specifically Egyptian women, Egyptian rural women and their own reception and consumption of uh, televised public awareness campaigns in the areas of health awareness, literacy, and family planning. So I did some field work in an Egyptian rural village. 
I interviewed women, I did in-depth interviews, I did focus group discussions, and I did publish a number of articles pertaining to this specific area of research. Of course, I still have a gender lens uh, in my own writing as also an affiliate professor of gender and women's studies besides being a professor of communication. Uh, actually, when the Arab Spring happened uh, in the year 2011, as we all know, this has been a pivotal moment, a very important moment uh, for changing the political and media landscape in the Arab world. And it had huge implications and huge effects, of course, uh, as we all know. So this really became a turning moment or a turning point in my own research agenda. After the Arab Spring uprisings, I started to shift my research interest and my research writing to the specific area of the Arab Spring uprisings, specifically with a focus on cyber activism or how people are using social media and new media for the purpose of inducing social and political change in this part of the world. That has been a key uh, you know, focus of my own research writing and research agenda, as well as cyber feminism, which refers to women's usage of social media and new media for the purpose of advocating their own research agenda. I've also had a keen interest in the area of Islamophobia, uh, how Muslim identities are being shaped in cyberspace. My first book, my first co-authored book, Islam.com, had to deal with, you know, the whole notion of women, you know, not just women, but, you know, the, the Muslim world in general, whether Muslim men, Muslim women interacting with each other in cyberspace, Muslims and other Muslims, as well as Muslims and non-Muslims, and how these interactions are pretty much shaping, uh, as well as reflecting modern Muslim identities in cyberspace. My second book, Egyptian Revolution 2.0, uh, this had to do more with the Egyptian Revolution and really the effects that political blogging has had in terms of paving the way for the transformations in Egypt and, and the Arab world more broadly, and the role that political bloggers played in the political and social sphere. So that was my second co-authored book. And my last book was my co-edited volume with Amal Midi from Tunisia. It was about Arab women's uh, political socio-political transformation, the unfinished gendered revolutions. And this particular book dealt with, as the name you know implies actually, how Arab women have been playing a very important role uh, in terms of the Arab Spring uprisings, but not only in terms of the uprisings, but actually before, during, and after the uprisings as well. So that is a very important point to remember. So all of these are actually different areas of research that I've been working on and still pretty much involved in up till now. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, can you share with us, uh, like, did you face any challenges throughout your uh, your, year, your year, years and with your involvement with different projects? Of course, I mean, uh, it's never easy to actually gain access, for example, to rural communities. When I was doing my research in rural Egypt, you actually need to have good context. You need to have, you know, what we call informants or key contacts in the community in order to be able to get accepted. Uh, ethnographic research is very effort and time consuming. People always talk about, oh, you know, is qualitative research even a type of scientific research? And I always say, yes, it's very much uh, rigorous and very much in-depth and really time and effort consuming. I think much more than people really appreciate. So just to get access to the community, to be able to establish rapport, credibility, to get accepted, to be able to do your own research, to conduct the field work, to collect the data, to analyze it, all of that is definitely very time and effort consuming and more than people understand and appreciate in many cases. Also, we cannot actually ignore the political realities in the Arab world, especially uh, with the uh, detours actually in the uh, democratic path, unfortunately, 10 years ago, we we're talking about, you know, the euphoria of the changing, uh, you know, media and political landscape in the Arab world and how there is 
uh, you know, a change hopefully in the direction of democratization and reform. 10 years later in the year 2021, unfortunately, we are witnessing the harsh realities of the detours in the path to democratization and reform with many countries, as we all know, going in the opposite direction, the direction of even chaos or statelessness or civil war or you know, humanitarian crisis or return to military dictatorship. And all of that definitely has a big impact on Arab media scholars because it's very hard to get access to the field. Uh, it's very difficult to get security clearances, difficult to conduct fieldwork research. Uh, even if you have collaborators from inside the Arab region, in many cases, it's very hard to have them actually accept to, to conduct the fieldwork. And if they do accept to do it, they also face all types of hurdles in terms of bureaucratic uh, you know, uh, clearances and security clearances. And there's always a political risk and you might go for, you know, people also not willing to talk to you in this part of the world. They want to talk to you under the curtain of anonymity or under the condition of not having their names published. So there are a lot of, you know, I would say hurdles and difficulties uh, when, you, when it comes to conducting research on Arab media, much more so than people from outside the region can really uh, appreciate or, or acknowledge or be aware of. So all of these are definitely challenges and difficulties that you know can really impact uh, any scholar trying to conduct research in the Arab world and about the Arab world and the Arab media lands, uh, landscape. Thanks so much uh, for sharing. Uh, currently, uh, Dr. Khamis, you are on a research sabbatical and enjoying this opportunity as a visiting researcher at the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University. What project are you working on uh, right now? I must say that the moment when the Arab Spring uprisings turned from you know, what I describe as the shift from techno-euphoria to uh, another sphere of digital authoritarianism, this has actually impacted my research agenda big time. So instead of writing about you know, cyber activism and cyber feminism and how social media can be used and deployed in many, many effective and positive ways to pave the way for social and political transformation, my research agenda is now focused on other research projects such as digital authoritarianism in the Arab world, the tug of war between regimes and their opponents in this part of the world, and how the governments are using cyber crime laws and other types of measures to try to crack down on journalists opponents, dissidents, and others who may be just simply opponents uh, of the regime in many different uh, ways and many different forms. So this has been now uh, really an important focus of my research, and I'm doing some writing in this particular area. Some of my work has been already published. Some of it is still uh, you know, in the process or under review. I'm also doing research on the changing landscape and its impact on Arab journalists, especially in the post-Arab Spring, as well as the post-COVID-19 era. So I'm also publishing a number of papers on this particular area of research, how the post-Arab Spring and post-COVID-19 uh, era is impacting the amount of freedom enjoyed by journalists in the Arab world, their ability to actually write about different topics, to enjoy different uh, degrees of freedom. And unfortunately, I'm witnessing a big backlash in terms of all of that. There is definitely a shrinking margin of freedom. There are many bureaucratic, infrastructural, social, political economic obstacles impacting journalists. So that is also another area of research. And of course, because of my gender focus, I also have specific pieces, especially focused on women journalists in the Arab world and the difficulties and hurdles that they are facing, again, in the post-Arab Spring and post-COVID-19 era uh, in particular. So all of these are parallel ongoing research projects that I'm working on at the moment. Of course, some of them are published, some of them are still in the process, but I'd be happy to also welcome collaborators who may be interested in contributing to any of these areas of inquiry and research. 
MashaAllah, many important uh, projects. I look uh, forward so much uh, to reading all new, uh, all new uh, publication uh, in the coming uh, years. Thank you so uh, much. Thank you. Actually, that uh, get me into my next point. Uh, last year, you published an article on the gender digital gap, Arab women and the COVID-19 pandemic, which is very uh, timely and important uh, research during the current uh, pandemic. Can you share with us your finding and recommendation? Yes, this particular piece, of course, uh, focused on really a very important aspect, which is really not just the, the digital divide, which is basically the gap between the technological haves and have-nots or the difference between those who have access to high-speed uh, internet, 24-7 high-speed internet. They have the good infrastructure and they also have digital literacy, uh, which I always say does not exist just between different countries. The digital gap exists between different countries as well as inside within the same country, you can find a gap between those who are in urban areas and those who are in rural areas those who enjoy high socioeconomic status, those who are from a less socioeconomic status. But in addition to that, there's also the gender digital gap, which means basically the gap also, which is triggered by the fact that women in many communities, especially in, in developing and underdeveloped parts of the world, including many parts of the Arab world, unfortunately are struggling with another layer because of gender digital divide. It's no secret that there is a high illiteracy rate in many parts of the Arab world, but that illiteracy rate becomes even higher among women, especially if you're talking about women in rural communities, you know, Bedouin communities, remote communities, and so on. There is also, of course, the lack of digital literacy, right? So it's not just about alphabetical literacy. There's also digital illiteracy. In many cases, they don't have the digital know-how or digital literacy to be able to navigate uh, the internet. And with the world becoming much more shifted to the virtual sphere and much more online, people are spending much more time on Zoom, on Skype, on different you know, virtual platforms in order to be able to communicate uh, you know, because they're not able to communicate face-to-face -face and in person because of all the hurdles and difficulties which are imposed and created by the COVID-19 pandemic. That meant that if you don't have access to high-speed internet 24-7 and you don't have the needed infrastructure and the needed access and availability of these resources and you don't have digital literacy skills, you're going to be left behind. And that was exactly the main finding of this particular a piece and central point and theme here was it's not only a digital divide, it's also a gender digital divide, which has been impacting women, especially in the Arab world, in many negative ways. In addition, of course, to a number of social and economic burdens that they have to grapple with that also exacerbated in the midst of the pandemic. For example, it's no secret that women also shoulder more responsibilities when it comes to child care, care for the elderly, care for the sick. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, women's responsibilities in the Arab world multiplied many times over, putting more shoulder, more uh, you know burdens and more uh, you know uh, really additional responsibilities on their shoulders that they have to grapple with. So that created really a very unfortunate situation. In many cases, they don't have you know uh, a source of income. They might have lost their sources of income. They lost their jobs or they lost their spouses or you know the, the ones who are supporting them, and they become the backbone of the family themselves, and they have to support the family adding additional uh, burdens uh, on their own shoulders as well. If they're working, for example, in certain positions as freelancers or part-time or you know, getting informal payment, even that became endangered. And in many cases, they lost their jobs and they lost their positions. So there are so many negative implications. But I ended uh, together with my uh, co-author in this uh, piece, uh, Eliza Campbell from Middle East Institute, 
we came to the realization also that there is some light at the end of the tunnel and there's some silver lining to this dark cloud because women are also starting to say, hey, we also have a golden opportunity to now raise our voices, become more organized and become members of you know, civic uh, society organizations, NGOs, uh, become more active in terms of organizing philanthropic activities and giving to our communities. And by doing so, hopefully we can find a place at the table. I always say, if you are not at the table, you will be on the menu. And women, unfortunately, have been on the menu for a very long time. And now it's time for them to be at the table and to make their voices heard and to make their demands clearly articulated. So that could be also an opportunity for them moving forward. Building on this positive uh, note of uh, uh, women's organizing uh, for social change uh, that affects their life, uh, throughout your scholarship, a lot of your work addressed uh, gender activism in the context of the Arab Spring uprising and also in the post-Arab uh, Spring era. I want more to learn based on your research and observation uh, how Arab women activism developed over the last decade and what are the current, uh, current priorities for activists? Yeah, that's a very important question, Katie. Thank you for asking this important question, because as I said you know, at the very beginning, being a scholar of communication, I'm also a scholar of gender and women's studies. And that has been something I'm always keen to keep as a key focus uh, and a key lens in my own research line and my research inquiry. Uh, I would say that definitely a very important point to remember is that women's activism was not born with the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring is a very important moment, of course. It had a lot of huge social, political, economic, and media implications. There is no question about it. But it would also be wrong to assume that women's activism was born with the Arab Spring. Women have been activists in this region for a long time, for many years, many decades before the eruption of the Arab Spring uprisings. And of course, they had a moment of golden uh, you know, visibility and, and prominence during the Arab Spring. And they also have continued activism in a number of ways after the Arab Spring. So I always say it's before, during, and after the Arab Spring uprisings, and that's how we should see it. I would say that women during the Arab Spring uprisings had this golden moment of being very visible. Uh, they played very important pivotal roles. They were at the front lines, the front lines of resistance uh, together, shoulder by shoulder with you know, fellow men and playing a very important role, not just as supporters, uh, you know, giving support and help and care for men, but really risking their own lives, in some cases becoming martyrs, uh, becoming arrested, becoming you know victims, becoming uh, in some cases even martyrs being killed, or uh, you know actually in some cases even exiled from their own countries or self-exiling themselves out of fear for their own safety and the safety of their own families. It became a very unfortunate situation then that this golden moment turned into a nightmare with the backlashes and the detours I talked about earlier uh, in the path or the road to transformation and to democratization and reform in this region women are part and parcel of society. I always say women are half of society and they give birth to the second half. So actually when you have these very negative, uh, you know, turns or outcomes in terms of the uh, political and media landscape in the Arab world, definitely it had a huge negative impact on women in this part of the world. Many of them stopped their activism altogether out of fear for their safety and the safety of their loved ones. Some of them had to only exercise their activism and resistance uh, you know, online and even online, they're not free of harassment, shaming, online shaming, online harassment, trolling, you know, hacking, all of that stuff, going after the reputation, trying to stigmatize them, 
you know, actually making some of them even use, you know, uh, pseudonyms or, or, you know, fake names uh, in order to hide the real identity, which is, of course, a shame, really. And some of them started to exercise their activism in exile from the diaspora, again, out of fear of authoritarian and autocratic regime. So the picture is far from ideal. It is becoming very dangerous. It is becoming truly threatening for, you know, those who are opponents and dissidents and journalists and those who are activists and freedom fighters in general, but for women in particular, especially if you're talking about more traditional conservative societies, which is the case in many parts of the Arab world, you know, there is also the added layer of, you know, social stigmatization or, you know, uh, family reputation or making sure you protect the family's name, making some families become extremely wary and very careful when it comes to a daughter or a sister or a wife or a mother who is an activist. So all of these are really uh, added layers of dangers. Myself and my co-editor in the book, Arab Women's Activism and Sociopolitical Transformation, Unfinished Gendered Revolutions. We talked about that and the contributors to the volume as well from many different countries and parts of the Arab world address different aspects of this phenomena. And that is definitely something I'm pursuing to write about and to continue writing about right now. And I believe it's gonna, I'm gonna continue to write about it for a number of years to come hoping that we're going to see at some point a shift in a better direction, hopefully. Thank you. It's very much needed uh, work, uh, really. Uh, thank you so much uh, again, uh, Sahar. Do you want to, to add any final uh, points? I just want to say that basically, uh, you know, everything I said about the difficulties, the hurdles, the challenges, we have to remember something very important. We have to remember that it is a tug of war. It is an ongoing tug of war. It's an ongoing push and pull mechanism between autocratic authoritarian regimes on one hand and between journalists, activists, opponents, and dissidents on the other hand. And that is pretty much also applicable in the case of women activists, journalists, dissidents, and opponents. I see it as an ongoing, continuous a tug of war, a push and pull mechanism. I think it's gonna to continue to be like that for a long time to come. I don't think that even with all the reversals and the detours that we have talked about earlier and the backlashes in terms of the amount of uh, you know, freedom, which is allowed in the region and the shrinking margin of freedom and all of that, I don't think we can declare that activism, uh, cyber activism, cyber feminism is dead. You know, it is definitely in the ICU now. It has a difficult time, a very difficult time, but I think it still has chances to survive. And the only guarantee of this survival is the continuous pulse, the continuous push, the continuous work of activists, dissidents, opponents, journalists, academics, scholars, writers, who always are keen to amplify and raise the voices of freedom and justice in this part of the world. And I sincerely hope to make a modest contribution in this particular area moving forward. Thank you so much. Thanks uh, again, Dr. Sahar Mohammed Khamis, an Associate Professor of Communication and an Affiliate Professor of Women Studies at the University of Maryland, College Park. For status, I'm Katil Hayek. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, Email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. 
To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. Thank you.